Hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community on this rainy Sunday morning. Uh, so yesterday I was a soccer coach and again had like five games in that rainy, coldy, coldy, rainy, cold nest yesterday. And, uh, and so wiped out from that. And then last night I, I woke up like every other hour. So a uh, bad night of sleep followed by a long day translates into might have an emotional preacher this morning. And so, but like there's nothing emotional about this sermon. Uh, and so like everything is, is, should be fine. But uh, there is a personal story I'll tell at the end that's probably going to make all the dirty crying happen. But I'm just, I'm going to try to, try to, uh, defend against it. Um, we're seeing uh, How to Drain Your Dragon 3 this afternoon with my three little boys, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to dirty cry in that too. So, uh, so it's going to happen all the way around. Hey, look, today we're going to be in a passage of Scripture that has like a thousand different applications, all right? And, and it's, it's a story that has leadership principles, it has uh, lessons that can be applied in virtually any setting. But a- at the same time, I believe it's a story of trust and confidence and boldness that is rooted in the power, the provision, and the faithfulness of God. And so as I wrestled with this text, as I really tried to, to question the text and get the question behind the question behind the question and get the issue behind the issue, if you will, I, I, I looked at this text. There are definitely strains of vision casting. Um, there, there's notions of like outlook determines outcome. There's, there's group manipulation dynamics. There's sin and rebellion is a central theme of these two chapters. But, but more than anything, I think this story that we're going to see at its core is a story about fear in our response to it. I think it's a story about fear and our response to it. Fear that our dreams won't come to fruition. Fears that they will. Fears that uh, of, of failure, fears of, uh, fear of loss, fear of not being able to overcome, fear of letting others down, fear of being let down, fears of not being able to move forward, fears of not being able to move back, fears that God might not be who he says he is and that he won't do what he says will do. You see, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, in chapters 13 and 14, the Israelites, they are on the edge of the promised land. And it's a moment that's been over 400 years in the making. God had promised Abraham, their forefather, that he would make them into a great nation, a a, a nation that would, would bless the whole world. But part of the promise that God makes to Abraham is that his descendants, as they grow into this nation, that they'll be enslaved for four centuries. And that happens. They're enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. But then God will bring them out of slavery and bring them back to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. But in the interim, while they're in slaves for 400 years, there's going to be other people groups that, that settle the land. And when the Israelites come back into the land, God's going to use them to, to, to really to judge the wickedness of the, of the people groups that were living in the land. They were engaged in all sorts of worship to false gods and goddesses, including stuff like child sacrifice and just, just incredibly immoral and wicked ways. And so God is going to use the Israelites uh, to judge their sin and really show the whole world that the one true God does not delight in those types of sinful worship practices. And so, but all of this is part of the promise that God has made to Israel. He'll bring them back to the promised land, but he'll use them uh, to, to uh, conquer the, the promised land and to settle it and to drive these other people groups from it. And so in Numbers 13 and 14, this plan is coming to fruition. Um, God has brought them out of, of slavery. They're on the edge of the promised land, on the southern border. They're basically on its doorstep. All they have to do now is go into the land. Now, understandably, at this point, the people are both uh, curious and nervous. They're, they're curious because is the land going to be as good as we hope it is? 
Is, is the land going to be as good as God indicated that it would be? And so they're curious about, hey, is this really what we, th- is it really going to be like what we think it's going to be like? And they're nervous because they're slaves. They're not warriors. They're not battle tested. And they know that they're going to be facing uh, people groups that are heavily armed and heavily fortified. And so for a human perspective, uh, the Israelites don't really inspire any confidence for military success. And so while they're on the edge of the promised land looking into it, they, uh, they, they hatch a plan to satisfy their curiosity and to gather intelligence for the coming battles. They send 12 spies into the land. Here's a map that shows the, the map that they took. Uh, they come in on the, southern border, on the southern border of the promised land down here by Kadesh Barnea, the passage we know as the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And then they travel as far north as Hamath, uh, which is uh, even further uh, north than the Sea of Galilee. That's the bottom is the Dead Sea, top is the Sea of Galilee. And so they go throughout the land. All totaled, it's 250 miles over the course of 40 days. And all along the way, uh, they are, are, are checking out fortifications, checking out armaments, but they're also uh, exploring the fruit of the land, checking to see is this really um, what we thought it would be, right? Is it, really, is it really a land flowing with milk and honey? And at one point, they decide that they're going to bring back some of the fruits of the land so they can tell the people what it's like and show the people what it's like. And they, they cut a cluster of grapes that's so big, one man can't carry it. They drape it over a pole and carry it between two of them. Like, that's how much, uh, that's, how, that's how big the grape cluster was. And it was just a symbol of, of just how fruitful, just how bountiful the land really was. But after seeing all the fruits of the land, these 12 spies get back and 10 of them, Give the people a bad report. They give the people a bad report. They say it's everything we dreamed it would be, but it's also every nightmare we ever feared. Let's look at their report. Chapter 13, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and with honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Okay, when it gets towards the end about them saying we saw the Nephilim there, okay, that was a people group that was before the flood. And so, like, they don't exist anymore. And for them to be saying, we saw the Nephilim, this lets you know, like, they are exaggerating their reports. Uh, like, the, the Nephilim had kind of been uh, mythologized, if I'm saying that right, to such a way to where they were considered, like, giants. And, and so when they're saying, hey, we saw the descendants of them, they're like, there were giants in the land, and we seemed like grasshoppers to them. And so you can just hear, it's just all drama at the end of the report. <laughs> and, and just kind of, uh, just, <clears throat> just creating this, this sense of panic among the people. But at the beginning, it was a good report. You know, at the beginning, they were like, hey, it is, it is the land of milk and honey. It's exactly what we thought. It's exactly what we hoped. 
It's exactly what we dreamed about. I mean, they, they invite people to come check out the fruit, and so they're wanting everybody to experience it. And this is an insight into how my mind works. Like, for me, this is, this is the scene of, tr- of the chocolate room in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Uh, the Gene Wilder version, not the creepy Johnny Depp one. <laughs> you, but, you know, like, the kids, they, they've been dreaming about what the chocolate room would be like, right? And the doors open, and it's all made out of candy, and Gene Wilder's singing in imagination how great it is and all that sort of stuff. Oompa Loompas come out. It's all nice. It's all fun. Uh, I guess until Augustus falls in. But, you know, it's just great, right? Like, it's everything they dreamed, everything that they would hope for. Same thing here. I mean, the Israelites, their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have been talking to them about how great the land's going to be and how it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And they get there and they see it is. It is as good as advertised. It's everything we hoped, everything we dreamed, everything God promised that it would be. But there's a catch. There's a catch. The people living there are powerful. The cities are fortified. They are very large. And we are like giant, they are like giants, and we are like grasshoppers. The Oompa Loompas are not small orange men. They are 12 feet tall, and they carry a battle axe. Like, the dream has taken a turn. You know, this is just not what we thought it would be. Ten of the 12 spies, they see all the, all the armaments. They see all the fortifications, and they're like, this isn't for us. This is not what we're supposed to do. We can't attack these people. And so they begin to spread this report. And and what report? I mean, they're not just spreading a report. What are they spreading with this news? They're spreading fear. They're spreading fear. They're spreading a sense of panic. They're spreading fear of what might happen. Fear of what could go wrong. Fear of of that they won't succeed. Fear that, that they will be devoured, that they can't go back. Fear that they couldn't, never will be able or to, to do this thing, that they shouldn't be able to do this thing. And once more, if we kept reading into chapter 14, we would see that they start to spread the fear that they're not being led well. They spread the fear that Moses and Aaron are actually leading them into harm, leading them into violence. And so the next thing that they do is they use fear to incite and to start a mutiny, to start, to start a rebellion against Moses, against Aaron. But know this, that rebellion is not just against Moses, it's not just against Aaron. That rebellion, that mutiny, is against the direction and call of God on their lives. Because again, it's just as God promised. He said it would be a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He also said that there would be wars to fight. He said that there would be battles in the land. And, and yet they get in, they see the armies, they see all of it, and, 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 and just fear grips them. Fear leads them to doubt the plan and provision of God because their vision of the promised land didn't have giants. Their vision of the promised land didn't have heartache. It didn't have hardship. It didn't have peril. It, it didn't have that, even though God had told them that all of this would be part of it. They, they also lost sight of the fact that just over a month before this, God had defeated the Egyptian army on their behalf. They didn't even have to raise a finger. And God wipes out the entire army and all the chariots in one fell swoop at the Red Sea. But yet here, they're on the edge of the promised land. They send the spies in, and their expectations for the promised land didn't match the reality. And when it didn't, it created this deep-seated fear inside their hearts, inside their souls. And that fear prohibits them from being able to see the, the long game, from being able to, to see what God might be doing in and through the situation. And it kept them from keeping in their mind the concerns of God, and they only looked at it from their perspective. Fear led them to believe that God's not who he says he is. He's not going to do what it is that he's promised to do. And so they said no. They said no. We're not going to do this. 
Their fear drove their disobedience, and they sinned against the Lord. The rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. But yet there were two who saw it differently. Caleb and Joshua. We already heard from Caleb in chapter 13 where he says we should go up and take the land for we can certainly do it. He saw the exact same thing the other ten saw. The exact same thing the other ten saw and yet his response is completely different. Joshua Joshua feels the same way. Joshua Joshua, uh, responds as well. In chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb uh, address this mutinous crowd that's, that's, uh, that's, that's coming against Moses and Aaron. And Joshua says this to them in verse 7. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua says the land's exceedingly good. One more, he's saying, hey guys, it's everything we hoped it would be. It's everything that they, that they promised it would be. And yes, there are the battles there, but that was also promised, right? But it's, it's exceedingly good. We know that God said it was going to be good. It's good. God's faithful, right? He's pointing them back to that. And he's like, look, God led us here. God led us to this moment. We don't need to be afraid of them. Their protection is gone. God is with us. Let's not rebel. Don't be afraid. This is for us. This is ours. This will be given to us. And so you hear Joshua and Caleb saying, look, we should go in. We should take it because we know God has promised this to us. We know that God is with us. So Joshua and Caleb, what are they doing? They're grounding that bold action, right? They're they're grounding their faith in the Lord's plan. They're grounding their rejection of that fear. They're grounding all of this in the knowledge that God is faithful, that God is faithful that he is leading, and that he will provide. Joshua and Caleb saw the exact same situation, but they had a completely different response. And the the Israelites let fear lead to this sinful rebellion. Joshua and Caleb let faith call call them to this bold action. Unfortunately, the call for bold action falls on deaf ears. Uh, The crowd still wants to continue their mutinous ways, and they decide that they're going to stone the leadership. And so uh, uh, they're, they're, they're going to, to stone Moses and Aaron. And yet God hears this and God intervenes. God threatens to actually destroy all the Israelites with a plague, wipe them off the face of the earth, and start again with Moses. And yet Moses once again comes and intercedes on behalf of the people. He intercedes on behalf of the people that were picking up rocks about to stone him. And so you see the, the love that Moses has for the Israelite people. And he comes back and, he, and he, he, he confesses their sin and he prays to the Lord. And if you read in 14, Moses, the, the prayer that he prays back to the Lord, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's praying back to the Lord God's promises and, and, and how God promised to, to, to bless Israel and use Israel and, and, and make a name for himself in and through Israel. And so um, we've talked about this before, how God's not changing his mind here. He's not going back, but it's really an invitation for Moses to intercede. It's an invitation for Moses to to see how much he loves God's people, to, to really take his place as a leader, to, to put himself out there for them. And so we, we see all that happening again because Moses confesses their sin, asks for forgiveness, and sure enough, the Lord forgives all of Israel for this mutiny at Kadesh Barnea. But yet their mutiny is not without consequences. Uh, when they were grumbling against the Lord, they said it would be better for us to die in the desert than to die in the promised land. And so God says, well, we'll honor that choice. And God 
sends them to the wilderness to let that entire generation of Israelites die off. They will not be able to enter the promised land. It will be their children who come back and enter the promised land. There are two exceptions to that pronouncement, the families of Joshua and Caleb. Uh, They survive, and they will one day be able to come back and help lead Israel to come back, conquer, and settle the land. But think about how tragic that is. Think about how, how tragic and how, how much the wheels come off for the Israelites here. I mean, this was a generation that's at the tail end of 400 years of slavery, but they knew slavery. They grew up in slavery, and they saw God's miraculous acts to bring them out of it. They get to the edge of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they would be able to rest. And yet, they let fear win the day. They say no, and they rebel. And it's into the wilderness for 40 years, into the desert for that generation to die off and then their children to come back. It's a, a somber passage to me where you see both fear and faith. And you can see how they can lead to two, two vastly different responses to the exact same situation. But, but before we, you know, judge the Israelites for letting their fear win the day, for letting their fear win out and, 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 and judge them for thinking, how could they not trust God in the moment? I mean, honestly, like, you know, 40 days before this, they saw the Red Sea destroy all the Egyptian chariots and armies and horses. They watched God do all these different miracles. Like, why do they get uh, hesitant here, right? Why do they get scared here? Bef- but, but before we judge them for that, like, I have to do the hard work and turn this on myself and, and, and think about my own sin. And, and there's so many times where in my sin, and I would say this might be the case with you in, in your sin, in our sin, in our personal rebellions against the Lord, so many times those are rooted in fear. Fear says, I don't want to be alone, so I'll stay in a relationship that I know is not pleasing to the Lord. Fear says, I have to fight and scrap for every little thing that I have in my life or whatever resources I have, so when we do have them, we reject the call to be open-handed and generous and bless others with, with whatever resources we have. Fear says, I'm not going to talk about my faith. I'm not going to share the gospel with anybody because I might be rejected. And so I'll, I'll just keep to myself. I'll just stay quiet. I won't open up. Fear says to, to look at everything through, through your own perspective, right? So fear says it's all up to me. So we just look at it from our own situation, from our own perspective, from our own strengths, and also from our own weaknesses. And when that's your lens, everything's twice as big, twice as ominous, and twice as scary. You see, fear attempts to maintain the illusion that you're in control, or you have to be in control, or you're going to lose control, rather than, than, than faith that leads us to relinquish that control to the one who actually is. See, whenever these fears, or whatever fear uh, you have in your life, whenever that, whatever that fear may, uh, may be, whenever it takes root, so often it prompts an act of self-preservation. It prompts an act of, se- of self-preservation, and sometimes that can seem... So incredibly innocent, but it's actually an act of mutiny and rebellion against God's design and calling on your life. And and so what happens is the very thing you thought that would save your life or save whatever vision you have of your life is actually the very thing that leads you to miss out on the fullness of life that God created and called and designed for you to live. We see, this with, we see this in this text for sure, because you know, fear led them to what they thought was self-preservation, but then they die in, in, the, in the desert. But I, I think you also see this with the disciples. The disciples had been following Jesus for uh, well over, over a year. They'd seen him do all these miracles. They'd heard him preach, heard him teach, and, and they had big ideas about what Jesus would do. 
on what, what he would do w- with his kingdom. If he's the Messiah as they envision the Messiah to be, if he's the Christ as they envision him to be, then, then, then the disciples are thinking it's going to be a quick overthrow of Rome, and the disciples will be sitting pretty in whatever new kingdom Jesus establishes. So it catches them off guard when Jesus starts talking about how suffering is part of following Jesus. How a, a life of following Jesus is not without risk or hardship or difficulty or trial. And so as a result, you know, when things, things aren't always going to go according to our expectations, they're not always going to perfectly match our hopes and dreams. And, and so know this, like when, when you just hear um, that suffering is part of it, but you don't know exactly what that suffering it is, you just know that it's promised, man, fear and denial is a natural reaction. In fact, when Jesus told his disciples that, that he himself was going to suffer and die, Peter wasn't having it. Like, Peter said, no, Jesus, that's not true. That's not going to happen to you. Because if that happened to Jesus, that would blow up Peter's notion. That would blow up Peter's vision for, for what Jesus should do as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior. The vision that Peter has for Jesus, he's not going to suffer and die. And that, that can't happen. And so he rebukes Jesus. Yet Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and corrects Peter and tells Peter, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but rather the concerns of man. And then Jesus goes a step further. And he raises the stakes for Peter, for the disciples who had gathered, and, and for so many, so many of the crowds that had gathered around him as well. And in Mark 8, 34 and 35, Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There is a dying to oneself that is an inherent part of following Jesus. And we don't talk about that enough at Grace City, and that's on me, but it's true. There is an inherent, there's a, a, a dying to oneself that is an inherent part of following Jesus. Because, you know, when, when we trust in him for our forgiveness, and we talk about that a lot, when, when we trust in him and the work that he's done on the cross to adopt, it, uh, adopt us into his family, when we trust in him to, to, to bring us into his kingdom and the work that he's done on the cross to remove our sin and grant us our salvation, we talk about those things week after week after week at Grace City. When we trust in the love that he's given us to bring about our redemption, to reconcile us to him, and we celebrate that love week in and week out at Grace City time and time again. But when we trust in him for those things, when we place our faith in him for, the, for those things, he is Lord of our life. That means he is preeminent. That means he is the ultimate authority, okay? Not our experiences, not, 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 not our feelings, not, not whatever cultural wisdom might be out there. No, Christ is preeminent, and, and he is the ultimate authority. And so a, as a result, we're going to go where he, where, he, where he leads. We're going to follow him wherever he leads. This is his word. His word has full authority over us. And so we need to, to do what his word commands us to do. And so many times, both of those things can be fearful. If I'm relating to him as Lord of my life, I'm saying I'm giving him my ultimate yes, I'm going to follow him whenever he leads, sometimes we don't always know where that's going to be. And that uncertainty can create those fears. If we've given him our ultimate yes and he is the Lord of our life and we know, okay, his word is binding on my heart, binding on my soul, binding on my beliefs, on my politics, on my ideology, binding on the way that I love and think and serve those around me, then, then his word is going to lead me to take action that, that might have consequences. 
And sometimes those consequences can, can, can be scary. And, and so when we don't know the far reach of those consequences and we don't know exactly where God might be leading us, that unknown can prompt the fear that leads to the rebellion that leads us to act out in sin against him. So the question should be, okay, if we see how this downward spiral can kind of work about fear leading to rebellion, the question should then come back and say, okay, how do we, how do we cultivate a faith to where if God leads us into a promised land that we think has giants in it, we have the response of Joshua and Caleb and say, let's roll. Let's get to it. Let's do it. How do we cultivate a faith to where if God leads us to a promised land where we think there might be giants, we have the response of Caleb and of Joshua? And we, we've, already, we've already hit the answer earlier this morning, but I'll, I'll call us back to it. Because Joshua and Caleb gave us a pattern here. They remembered the promises and the provision of God, and that influenced their faith. They remembered the promises and the provision of God, and that influenced their faith. And the same is true for us. So we anchor our faith in the revealed character and goodness of the Lord. And that's what gives us faith, even in the face of our fears. Okay, so it's, we, we come back and we say, okay, I know that you're loving. I know that you're good. I know that you're holy. I know that you're all-powerful. I know that you're almighty. I know that you're all-wise. I know that your ways are smarter than my ways. So even if I can't make sense of what's happening in the short run, and man, when we can't make sense of what's happening in the short run, that's what makes our fears redline. That's what makes our fears spike. And so we come back and say, God, your ways are smarter than mine. You're true. You're right. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in the long game. I can't see it, I can't make sense of it, but I'm going to trust in the long game here. And, and God, I'm going to bank on your character to help me have in mind the concerns of God. Because everything in me is screaming the concerns of man. You see, well, in, in those moments, remembering, remembering God's character, remembering his goodness, remember the attributes that he has shown us in his word. So many times when we stop and just go through the mental exercise of remembering and, and, and calling to ourselves, the goodness, the attributes of God that can stop our rebellion and lead us to take a bold action. Remembering his character, remembering his goodness, remembering his promises helps stop the rebellion and leads us to a bold action. But hear me when I say this. This is not a, uh, a one-and-done cure-all, so, so to speak. Like, okay, we've heard the sermon. I understand the sermon, David. If I remember God's goodness, I'm never going to struggle with fear again. Okay, that's not the takeaway. Uh, it's, just, it, it, it's a false promise. This, this is a practice discipline that you do whenever you feel the fear rise up. And, uh, and for, for, for me, it, it happened this past Thursday night. Um, I was coaching my boys' soccer game. Uh, so it's uh, U7s or U8s. It's a bunch of seven-year-olds coaching the soccer. And it was late Thursday night. And, uh, and I'm on a sideline. All the parents are on the other sideline. And all the lights are over there shining in my face. So I can't really see what's happening on the other sideline. Because everybody's backlit. It's all, it's all silhouettes. It's all shadows. And I'm coaching the game. And, uh, and all of a sudden, a, a fire truck starts coming down the street, coming close to soccer fields. And the kids are like, hey, there's a fire truck, coach. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's probably for the basketball court. Because we're next to a basketball gym. I was like, and, and so, and, like, focus on the game, right? Because it's about halfway through the third. And then the fire truck turns in the soccer fields. And I was like, oh, maybe somebody's, somebody's been hurt here at the soccer field. And, uh, and it stops kind of close, but you know, our game's going. I can't see anything that's happening, so I keep coaching and get to the end of the soccer game. And, uh, and, and then I, I, I cross the fields, and I get over to the other side of it, and um, I do my whole post-game, like, hey, you know, good job, boys, type of a deal on this. Uh, one of the dads comes up and says, hey, hey, uh, hey David, you're, uh, 
it's, 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 it's like, this makes it seem like it's bigger than it is, but um, he said, hey, hey, David, your, your dad fell, and uh, he's fine, but, uh, but he's, he, he fell, and, and I looked, and uh, <clears throat> I looked, and April's with him. April got to him right, right, right when he fell, but he didn't fall. He, he fainted, and he actually had a, um, it wasn't fainting. His, uh, his heart slowed, and uh, I think it slowed. I don't know if I'm telling it right, April, or not, but, uh, but, but April was first to him, and, uh, and Anna Eldridge, if y'all know Anna, she was there. And all this happened, like, before I saw it, right? So, like, like I'm, I'm at the aftermath. <laughs> like, I wasn't there in the moment. I didn't see it go down because, uh, like, they're like, hey, he's there, he's fine. I look, and April's talking to him. So, like, my fear didn't quite spike, but it was like, okay, there's, there's been an issue. But I also know that, like, I've got my seven-year-olds all around me, one of them being my son, who's asking questions about his granddad. And, uh, and so it's like, all right, let's pray. Let's, let's pray for him. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I how do I pray in a way to where the seven year old actually I'm just thinking I just oh, I gotta pray. <laughs> so, but I also know that I'm praying with my seven year old. And so when I start praying, I, I find myself just coming back and saying, God, you're good. God, you're good and you're loving and you are in control. And like, I mean, again, like April and Anna handled it like such a champ, they didn't even show like fear in the moment. And so that was good because if they had, I probably would have lost my mind. And uh, but but so but in in that in that moment, all right, just that that short simple praying, it really wasn't like a level ten emergency for me there because I didn't understand the gravity of the moment to be honest with you. But just going through that practice of God, you're loving and you're good and you're kind and you're in control, kept the fear at bay for that moment. For that moment. And that's all this sermon is about right now. It's keeping fear at bay for the moment. I, I, I think it, we can come back to the prayer that, that uh, Jesus is talking to this, uh, this man. He's about to heal his son. And he says, do you believe I can heal your son? And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And so it's such a statement of faith, right, that's mixed with all those doubt and questions. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief, right? So like this, this, this practice of, of remembering God's goodness to help us have faith in the face of our fears, it's not that it all magically goes away, but it helps us, it helps us win the moment because the fear's still there, but it's God, I know you're good, I know you're loving, I know you're kind, I know you're in control, and that's going to help me, that's going to help me win the moment. That's going to help me win the moment and keep the fears at bay. It's a way that we can respond in, in such a way that honors God and puts us in a position to be used by Him in, in ways that, that, that we can't imagine. It's a way for us to win the moment, to win the occasion. It's a way that we can pick up our cross and come after Him, die to ourselves and say, I just want to have in mind the concerns of God when everything in me is screaming the concerns of man. And I'm telling you, again, it's not a one and done type deal because that was Thursday night and yesterday we went to see Him in the hospital and when I walked in, He's fine. He's fine. Let me just say that. All right. <laughs> He's fine. They're, they're doing some tests and, uh, and <clears throat> maybe put in a pacemaker or a defibrillator in a day or two. That's dad's definition of fine. And so, uh, but no, when I, when I walk in and I see Superman in the hospital. God, you're good. Heart of gratitude. And you just you just do that to his point. You just do that. You're good and you're in control. 
and he gave me a wife that responded in such a moment. He gave me friends and things, and just all that. You just, you just fight it back. And so from that moment, hospital, deep spirit day, God, I'm going to trust you. And that's it. I don't know what you're walking through right now. All right? I, I don't know what fear is, is, is lying in your ear. I don't know what challenges you're facing. Um, but there, there are monsters that, that rise up, right? There are things that are giants in the land. And, and I think we can learn from 13, learn from Numbers 13, learn from Numbers 14, that we can come back and have the response of Joshua and Caleb. And we can come back and, 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 and recall the goodness, the provision, the power, the might, the faithfulness of God to give us the faith to turn and let the monsters see you smile. And turn and say, I'm going to let my faith win this moment. I want my faith win this moment. And that's a way to help us respond in faith for boldness of action, boldness to trust, boldness to say yes to him, boldness to take risks for the gospel, boldness to come to help you hold on to your convictions. All right, it is a faith that conquers fear one battle at a time. One battle at a time. And it's, it's cultivating a discipline of faith that can help you Lay down your life, pick up your cross, and absolute trust to Christ and lead you to the fullness of life.